Welcome to another installment of Christmas in Quarantine. It's Christmas Past's impromptu miniseries of indeterminate length, all about bringing you some Christmas spirit during these uncertain times. I do hope you're staying safe and healthy, that you're practicing all of the common sense guidelines and taking your advice only from trained medical professionals. Now today, we have another story. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that the 100th episode of Christmas Past is coming this week, and I want you to be on it. So record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. You can say hi, send a shout-out to a loved one, or anything else you want to share with the rest of the Christmas Past family. But act soon so that I can be sure to include you in the episode. The story we're starting today is from 1832, written by Miss Mant. It's called Christmas, A Happy Time, a tale calculated for the amusement and instruction of young persons. Gotta love those 1832 book titles. We're going to break the story up into two parts. Part one today, part two tomorrow. I'll come back at the end to say goodbye, but for now, get nice and cozy, because once again, it's story time. Harriet and Elizabeth Mortimer were two very pretty and, generally speaking, very good little girls. Their kind papa and mama had taken a great deal of pains that they should be good, and it was very seldom that they vexed them by being otherwise. A very happy time was now expected at the family at Beech Grove by the arrival of John and Frederick Mortimer from school. It was within a few days of Christmas, and as the sisters and brothers had never, till the last few months, been separated, their meeting together again was looked forward to with general and lively pleasure. Do you see anything of the stage, Elizabeth? said Harriet to her sister, who had been running down to the end of the plantation to peep over the gate and listen if she could hear the approach of wheels. No, there's nothing in sight, replied Elizabeth, whose teeth chattered from the cold while her hands were so benumbed she could scarcely close the gate, which she had ventured to open about half an inch. They will never come, said Harriet. But you should not open the gate. You know Papa and Mama told us we should not do that. And how cold you are. You are all over in a shiver. Come, let us have a run around and that will warm you. Remember, Mama begged us not to stand still in this sharp, cutting wind. Yes, so she did, replied Elizabeth. And indeed, it is very, very cold down at the corner. And they will not come any sooner for our standing there. And according to Harriet's proposal, the two little girls began to run around the grounds, which put them in a complete glow. Elizabeth's fingers very soon ceased to ache with cold. As they passed the greenhouse, they saw the gardener matting up the myrtles on the outside, and Elizabeth stopped to inquire about the time the coach was likely to pass. I look for it every minute, miss, replied the man, and that's the reason I keep about here, that I may be handy to help the young gentleman out and bring in the boxes and that. I look for them to be much grown, miss, for it is a fine bit now since we have seen them. I don't know what Master John will say about his myrtle that he used to be so proud of, for I'm afraid it's dead. But hark ye, miss, sure, that's wheels, yes, and there comes a coach too. And away posted the gardener and both the little girls after him. It was a coach, and it was a very noisy one, or at least the passengers were very noisy. Such a blowing of horns and hallooing and huzzahing. The coach went by without stopping at the gate, and although the gardener ran after it and endeavored to speak to the coachman, his voice was drowned in the multitude of little voices within and without the coach, and he was obliged to return, disappointed himself to the disappointed young ladies who stood anxiously looking out within the gate. 
Before there was time to express any regret, another coach appeared in sight, and this might be the coach so much longed for. This also approached with shouting and blowing of horns. Again, the gardener put himself forward, and this time, the coach seemed to draw down toward the gate. Harriet even fancied she saw her dear brother John looking out of one of the windows. But again, she was disappointed. The coachman, though he drew to the side of the road, scarcely allowed his horses to stop, and flinging the servant a letter, which he took from his waistcoat pocket, again he flourished his whip, and again the coach passed on. A letter for your papa, miss, said the gardener, picking it up and offering it to the young ladies. Shall I take it to James to carry in? No, I will, I will, exclaimed both the little girls at once. Elizabeth, though the youngest, generally contrived to be the forwardest, and seizing upon the letter as the gardener held it between his finger and thumb, she scampered away, followed by Harriet, and they both arrived almost breathless in the drawing room. The coaches are both past, Papa, said Harriet, without John and Frederick. And as soon as the information had been given, she burst into tears. But here is a letter which will tell about it, I dare say, Papa, added Elizabeth. To John Mortimer Esquire, Beech Grove, she continued, reading the direction as she presented the letter. It is John's writing, Papa. Mrs. Mortimer looked uneasy, and Mr. Mortimer broke the seal of the letter with some little alarm. It is all very well, said the kind father almost directly. Nothing to apprehend, my love, he added, as he handed the letter across to his wife. The letter was as follows. My dear Papa, no room for us in either of the coaches, inside or out. Mr. Brown is going to send us in a post-chaise with two other boys. Your affectionate and dutiful son, John Mortimer. Our pleasure is only delayed for a few hours, said Mr. Mortimer, as he put an arm around the neck of each of his little girls. They will be here in the course of a short time, no doubt. And have you got everything ready to receive them? Oh yes, Papa, quite ready, replied Elizabeth, who was slipping her neck from under her father's arm with the intention of again returning to the bottom of the shrubbery. Harriet directly followed her toward the door. And where now, my little girls, said Mrs. Mortimer, not to the shrubbery again this evening? We were going, Mama, replied Elizabeth. Had you rather we should not? I had, answered Mrs. Mortimer. You have been out nearly two hours, and the air is now very cold and sharp. The sun is set, and in a short time it will be quite dusk. You can watch the road from the playroom window, and I think it very likely your brothers will not be here before quite night. Both the little girls would have preferred another run in the shrubbery and another peep over the gate at the end of it. But they were accustomed to know that their mother's judgment was better than their own, and without a murmur, therefore, they repaired to the schoolroom. Oh, there they are, there they are, said Elizabeth, before she had scarcely reached the window. It must be my brother's, I am sure it was a post-chaise. Where, where, said Harriet, jumping up upon the window seat and straining her eyes to catch a sight of the desired object. I cannot see it now, replied Elizabeth. It is gone behind the elm trees by the side of the road. We shall see it again presently. Do go, dear Harriet, and ask Mama if we may go down and meet them. But I do not know they are coming, said Elizabeth. Do, dear Elizabeth, tell me where you saw them. I do not think you could have seen them, and if you did, they must be a great way off. Oh, there, there, Harriet. Cannot you see them now, said Elizabeth, putting her arm around her sister's neck. There, just by the mill, this side of the elms. Now they're gone again. Yes, I see them, replied Harriet. And now they are come out again from behind old Jackson's cottage. Oh, now I see them very plain. I can almost make them both out. 
Oh, I can make them quite out, said Elizabeth. And they have got a horn, too, and are blowing away, and John is shaking his handkerchief. Oh, I wish we might go down and meet them. And both the children began jumping about in an ecstasy of joy. At this moment, Mr. and Mrs. Mortimer entered the playroom. They are coming, Papa, they are coming, Mama, said Harriet and Elizabeth both together. Mrs. Mortimer had thrown a large cloak and hood over her, and Mr. Mortimer had his hat in his hand. We were coming to fetch you to meet them, said Mr. Mortimer. Come, make haste, or they will be here before we can get out of the house, for the young gentlemen travel very rapidly with their four horses. Harriet and Elizabeth hastened after their father and mother, who were preparing to lead the way to the shrubbery. But before they were out of the hall door, the post-chaise and four was rattling down the avenue, and in a few minutes the two lads were pressed to the hearts of their beloved parents and their affectionate sisters. As the two youths who accompanied the Mortimers were eager to pursue their journey, the chaise was soon on its return down the avenue, and John and Frederick, who with all their happiness could not help finding out that they were very cold and hungry, were glad to be summoned to the dining room and to feel the warm carpet and see the blazing fire and the smoking meat upon the table. Between eating and talking there was a great deal to do. The former, however, it was most necessary to attend to for a short time, and when their hunger was satisfied, they drew with their father and mother and Harriet and Elizabeth round the cheerful and enlivening fire, and a more happy party perhaps could hardly be imagined. Before the boys had went to school, each of the children had low stools of their own, which it had always been their delight to sit upon when summoned to the dining room after dinner. For at that time they had been accustomed to have their own dinner in the nursery. Now, however, they were to be indulged by dining with their parents, when the family dinner hour was moderately early and there was no large party at table. And on the present occasion, the same little stools which had been such favorites formerly were now brought again into use. The girls had almost feared proposing them, as they knew not what changes the boys' school might have occasioned in their brother's habits, but no sooner was the cloth removed and the grace said, then the active little Frederick flew to the sideboard and took possession of his old and favorite seat. John followed his example. Those of the two little girls were already standing by the corners of the chimney piece, and Frederick between Mama and Elizabeth, and John between Papa and Harriet, very soon settled themselves and made the family circle complete. Into the middle of this circle a favorite little terrier now leaped and began his gambols, while the old pet Tibby the cat, which the children had all been accustomed to carry about from infants, came rubbing her sides against the young strangers and began purring to be taken notice of. As the day had closed long before the dinner had disappeared, the boys could only hear all there was to be heard tonight about any alterations or improvements which had taken place since their absence. What success their sisters had met with, in keeping with their stock of rabbits and poultry, whether the ice house had yet been filled, how went old Neddy the donkey if he was yet too old to be ridden, whether the myrtles were alive and their own gardens had been full of flowers, and a variety of other inquiries extremely interesting to them, and which would have doubtless been made by many of my young readers on similar occasions as those on which we are writing. Harriet and Elizabeth were equally glad to reply to all their brother's questions, and they had a great many to ask in return, whether they liked school as well as home, whether they always had meat and pudding and as much as they liked of both, what plays they played at, and if they had good-natured companions. 
There was an abundance to say upon all of these subjects, and then Mr. and Mrs. Mortimer had their inquiries to make, about books and classes and sums and school hours and play hours and going to bed and getting up, so that the tongues all ran very nimbly, and doubtless there remained plenty more to say, when at length little Frederick's words began to lengthen themselves as he uttered them, and his eyes were with difficulty strained open. Mr. Mortimer gave him a pat and asked him how early he had been up in the morning. He had scarcely been in bed the whole night. He had since performed a journey of near seventy miles, and, as he was not yet seven years of age, it was not to be wondered at that sleep should thus be striving to get the better of even his feelings of joy and happiness. John, who was only two years older than his brother, did not shew much less symptoms of fatigue, and Mrs. Mortimer proposed having the tea immediately that the boys might get to bed. This plan was instantly agreed to, their heads were soon snug on their pillows, and in the morning they both awoke in high health and joyous spirits. It was now that Mr. and Mrs. Mortimer could see how much their dear boys had grown, and how well they were looking. John triumphantly stood beside his sister Harriet, who was a year older than himself, and told her he should be very soon taller than she was. And Frederick had actually outstripped the little Elizabeth who told one more year than he did. The girls, however, were reconciled to this acquired superiority of stature by discovering that Papa was a great deal taller than Mama, though they were both exactly the same age, and Frederick concluded the whole dissertation by adding that, to be sure, men ought to be taller than women. It does not much signify what are your heights, my dear children, said Mr. Mortimer, affectionately gazing upon the whole group, if you are but good and amiable. I should be very glad to see my young Fred a brave grenadier, added the fond father, placing his hand upon the head of his young son, but I shall be much better pleased to see him a good man. But now, who is for a walk? The morning is fair and bright, and those who do not mind the cold away for your great coats and hats, and I will take a walk with you to the ice house to see if the men are beginning to fill it. It was not necessary to repeat this invitation, and towards the ice house the party immediately proceeded. As they passed through the park they went by a sheet of water on which during the summer had been a boat, but which now was caked over with ice and had every appearance of being hard enough to bear the weight of a man with his skates on. John and Frederick were both running to the edge, and had not their father been with them would have immediately ventured on an amusement hardy and bracing when followed with prudence, but which requires the caution of experience not to be carelessly indulged in. Wait till tomorrow, boys, said Mr. Mortimer. The ice is not strong enough to bear you today. In another four and twenty hours I think it will be safe, should the frost continue, and I have directed James to prepare my skates. The boys both desisted, for they had been very early taught to submit to the opinion of their father. But Frederick could not help saying, I think it would bear, Papa, and feeling more disappointed than his looks perhaps expressed. We can very well wait another day, Frederick, said John, as he saw his brother's disappointment on walking on. Perhaps the frost may be broken then, replied Frederick. But he soon found other amusement and bounded over the stile into the lane before the rest of the party had scarcely lost sight of the sheet of water in the park. Oh, here are the men with a load, said Frederick, as his father came into sight. Fine, thick ice, Papa. Oh, so thick. I am sure it must be hard enough to slide where that thick ice comes from. That ice is taken from a mere hole, replied Mr. Mortimer, from that dirty little patch of water by the side of the yonder hedge, do you see? It is very shallow and is therefore soon encrusted, but even before it was cut by the pickaxe, 
it would not have been smooth enough to have been slidden upon. And now you see it is all in pieces, and you might as well try to slide on a heap of stones. By this time, all the party had crossed the stile and were proceeding along the lane. I wonder you did not have the ice house filled from the water in the park, Papa, said Harriet. This is such dirty, nasty-looking stuff. You have before seen in what manner the ice house is filled, replied Mr. Mortimer, that the ice is all broken, almost pounded to pieces, and then stored below ground. And I have also told you that it is never eaten, and it signifies little whether it is entirely pure or not. The house will be rendered as cold by this ice as by that from the park, and that is all which is necessary. It would be a pity to spoil the appearance of the other unless it were necessary, particularly as John and Frederick and myself hope to have some good slides upon it during the holidays. Having stopped to ask a few questions of the men employed in conveying the ice from the pond, Mr. Mortimer now proceeded with his children to a farmhouse not very far distant where they all met a very hearty welcome and where the boy's attention was arrested by two little grey ponies which were in the meadow adjoining the farmyard. Well, what do you think of them? said Mr. Mortimer. They were pronounced beautiful by both the boys, and their father then told them that they had been purchased for their use, and that of their sisters. But they would not be fit to be ridden till the summer. He designed to have them both properly broken in by next holidays, and the boys were delighted with the prospect of riding them on their next return to school. If the young gentleman would like a ride this Christmas, sir, said the kind farmer, my Thomas's pony is a nice quiet little fellow, and Tom would be proud to lend him. John and Frederick looked at each other and at their father, but at length John suggested that as only one could ride at a time, they had better put off their rides till the summer, and Harriet and Elizabeth were both pleased that such was the decision. The next visit was to the parsonage, where many a round, happy countenance greeted the return of the young Mortimers, and while Mr. Mortimer was engaged in conversation with the excellent pastor of the village, Mr. Wexford, the young people were introduced into the playroom of the little Wexfords. Mr. Wexford made a petition that the young people should spend the day together, but as it was the first of the Mortimers being at home, their father declined it for them, at the same time promising that they should have the indulgence in a short time, and also expressing a hope that the Wexfords would return the visit at Beech Grove. Thanks so much for listening, I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you will join me again tomorrow for part two of the story. And once again, I really do hope that you will be part of Christmas Past's 100th episode. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to stay connected on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't yet joined the Christmas Past private Facebook group, maybe today's the day you will, because I would love to welcome you. And if you're enjoying these daily episodes, I'll bet you know other people who could use a little Christmas spirit right now, so why not help more people discover the show? All you have to do is tell a friend about it or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Those are both quick and painless ways to show your support, and they really do make a big difference, which I appreciate. So if you do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will even send you an official Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details about that. Until tomorrow, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>